welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we will explore the fascinating story of aerial warfare on the Western Front, its formation, technological development and evolution during four years of warfare, which forever changed the story of powered flight. Hello again, Dan. Always a pleasure to join you on the podcast. And today on our survey of the Western Front, we're actually leaving the trenches and we're taking to the skies because the subject today is, of course, one of the most fascinating, in my opinion, of the entire First World War. And this is how humans went from inventing flight in just 1903 to having the first aerial dogfights just 12 years later. It's the story of air warfare on the Western Front. It is indeed, and it's going to be a fascinating one as well. I think, uh, you know, some of these subjects that we've covered so far, you can see a kind of evolution. Sometimes it's a little more difficult to to unpick and you have to really delve a bit deeper to see exactly how things evolve on the Western Front. I think one of the exceptions to this, and a clear exception, is warfare in the skies, because there is such a clear evolution that you can follow from 1914 to 1918, not only in size and scale, but in technological development as well. That's why I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this one. So loads to discuss and then probably a few myths along the way as well, Spence. There seems to be a few that crop up, particularly related to aerial warfare. And maybe we'll address a couple of those along the way. We will indeed, because there's something about aerial warfare at the time and how we in our memories of it that has given us perhaps a, a unique view of this type of fighting. And I think it owes something to the fact that even at the time, aerial warfare was so novel and so different that it became a very popular subject in all forms of media, whether it was art, magazine stories, newspaper stories, and later, of course, films. Some iconic films cover aerial warfare in the First World War. I'm thinking of Wings, I'm thinking of the Dawn Patrol, I'm thinking of the Blue Max, I'm thinking of Aces High, which has given us a a general overview in our mind's eye about what aerial warfare looked like. But what we're going to do on this episode is, of course, get a little bit deeper into this and explore some of the myths and some of the realities. And I have to say some of the hardships of being a pilot in the First World War, because it was not really an enviable position, especially at certain times in the war for the British and the Allies, when the Germans would have a technological advantage. Yeah, absolutely true. And no doubt we'll we'll cover those kind of... uh aerial engagements and the idea of this chivalry and whether that even exists, even in the slightest amount. In fact, I think the main thing that we need to discover here is it's 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 not an easy position for anybody, let alone if there's somebody else in the sky trying to shoot you down in the first place. Just being in the air in 1910, 1912, 1914 at the start of the First World War is a dangerous place to be. We're talking really, really basic, basic aircraft monoplanes with totally unreliable engines. We've got guys obviously in the air without parachutes. Uh, That's something we'll no doubt cover as we go a bit later on. Uh, Something sticks in my mind, and this goes back to doing some research um, back in about 2014. It was for the centenary, actually, of the First World War. And we were looking at local villages within my county of Hertfordshire and their experiences of the war. And there's one thing that sticks out. It's actually two years before the war. It's the first Royal Flying Corps mission to go wrong just in the very formative years of the Royal Flying Corps. And it happens over the village of William 
And I remember it's a uh, it's a Captain Hamilton and Lieutenant Winer Stewart in a deproducing a French-built monoplane. They're flying over the town of William. And th- this story basically goes out and, and becomes famous within this little village because nobody in the village in 1912 has ever seen an aircraft. So the whole village comes out, the school stops, the local vicar comes out, everybody's looking skyward to see this brand new technological wonder for the very first time. And what happens? The wing falls off as they're flying along, crashes down, kills both guys, and they're the first guys officially killed in a Royal Flying Corps mission. And you can imagine, imagine the first time that you see an aircraft, the, the wing falls off the thing. You know, this is how precarious these things are in 1912. Super dangerous. If you break down in the sky, you can't pull over at the side of the road. You know, these kind of things are absolute. The guys flying them need nerves of steel. They really do. And this is something to emphasize, I think, the fact that powered flight has only occurred in 1903. It's that that recent just 11 years before the First World War breaks out. And of course, the Wright brothers have achieved the remarkable with their their first flight. But let's not forget, it barely gets off the ground and it, it certainly doesn't go very far. And it's the speed with which that technology develops, which I find absolutely fascinating. You go from this very, very simplistic, um, extremely short flight. Uh, I believe off the top of my head, the, uh, the Wright flyer, the, um, the that early aircraft it only flies just a sort of matter of feet really um, in uh, in 1903 later versions of course fly a bit further but they don't get very high off the ground I think there are and they're for, for those early flights they're only going about 150 to 200 feet in distance before they have to, to come to a halt and yet within a decade you have planes that can fly so much higher so much further. Yet at the same time, and I think your your anecdote there about the first Royal Flying Corps crash captures something. This technology is incredibly primitive. It's incredibly dangerous. And what fascinates me is that so many young men and even a handful of young women really want to get into these machines and learn to fly and take off in them. You're literally flying in a, a, a construct of wood canvas with a pretty small horsepower engine strapped to the front. This is this is daring adventure, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, when you look at this kind of thing, and, and I suppose you could wind it back to different points of warfare, and you could ask, you know, who wants to take on the new, exciting, flamboyant-style of warfare, I guess, you know, at some point it would have been young lads wanting to grow up and be knights in a in a medieval battlefield somewhere or, you know, whatever the, the most flashy and, and, and exciting, if you like, tip of the spear would be. And, and clearly this is that in 1914, you know. We're, we're talking about lads here who would have traditionally gone into the cavalry in the 1890s. Now they're going into the into the Royal Flying Corps. This is the, the same people at home from that young... Fairly well-to-do background, maybe drive their early sports cars and this kind of thing. It's exactly the same kind of thing. There's some real daring. Um, and we'll discuss some of these major characters as we go through, some of whom have, uh, of course, gone down in in legend. Um, but across the board, I think, regardless of which uh, which side of the, of the fight you find themselves on, there is this real leveler that, you know, despite the fact they are fighting in the skies, they're also fighting... The elements they're fighting their own machines and they've got this huge huge risk and one number that we can we can throw out there right from the start here there are more people killed training in the great war than there are killed in combat on aircraft and powered flights that's a staggering number 
And uh, it's not unknown to those early pioneers, those early aviators as well, which makes it even more remarkable, I think, Spence. It is. This is. It's also true of the Second World War. Although there's, I believe, there's more airmen killed in action in the Second World War. There's still a very high number of men who perish in training accidents. And in the First World War, where technology is a lot cruder, across all the combatant nations, the risks of actually being killed in an air accident is pretty, pretty darn severe. There's. In fact, the U.S. Air Force, this is, of course, in the First World War, carried out a pretty detailed survey about how often does somebody die in training. And they came to a conclusion that there's going to be one fatality for every 1,000 hours of training. Now, that's not 1,000 hours for you as an individual. It's across a group. So it doesn't sound that vast, one death per 1,000 hours. But I would say try and find another job where every 1,000 hours, one member of your workforce is killed in that job. And this isn't in combat, this is just in training. This is the risks involved because these machines are crude, they can break down, the loss of a wing you've already told us about, an engine can fail, or you as a pilot just might make a mistake. And these planes are pretty unforgiving. If you turn them too fast, if you dive too sharply, if you climb too high and you stall, then your plane is going down and there's not a lot you can do about it. And the crash safety in these planes is pretty minimal. Although it is possible to make forced landings. One of the advantages is they don't need, most of the planes don't need runways. They can just land on any piece of flat ground. Even so, controlling these planes is difficult. You need a certain amount of strength to just kick the rudder. You use the rudder with your feet, handle the flight stick, which is pretty, you know, pretty severe, pretty heavy piece of equipment. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult. And if you do hit the ground at speed, your chances of surviving that are pretty minimal. So it is, it is really severe. And just to Take, take this on a little bit more with the American statistics, which are, I think are some of the most detailed we have for an Air Force preparing itself. Remember this American Air Force is preparing itself in 1917 and 18 too. So it's a little bit later in the war. The aircraft are a bit more advanced. The Americans are actually using advanced French fighter aircraft at this stage. So they're, they're sturdier, they're better flyers. But even so, the American experiences, there's one fatality for every 90 graduates in just preliminary work. So one out of 90 pilots die just doing the preliminary work, which is basically, it's like when you learn to drive. It's, you know, taxi your plane forward, take it off, fly it around the airfield a few times and land it again. And there's, there's still a death rate of one in 90 at that preliminary stage. This is dangerous work. And that's in 17 and 18. It's much more dangerous in 14, 15, 16, when the aircraft are so much cruder. So just to re-emphasize the point, these are daring men. These are daredevils. They're brave. They're risking their lives, just preparing themselves to actually go into action, let alone actually being in action. And your comment, Dana, that this attracts a certain mindset, I think is well-placed. The kind of young man who'd want to drive a sports car, sports cars popular in this period, or ride a horse, or do something daring. Initially, it very much attracts daredevils, people who want to go and, and you mentioned this comment about relive the days of nights, except this, this time they're going to be knights of the sky. Yeah, classic phrase there, knights of the sky. I do like it. Not sure how accurate it is, and we'll come back to that and discuss <laughs> in a moment. Um, but I think what's really interesting as well, and, and this is something that I think in previous episodes we've maybe leveled against the military in a number of ways, and that's uh, a lack of ability to see opportunity where it comes up. Or, Perhaps we haven't leveled it. I think it has been leveled in the past, I think, by various 
different sectors. And this is somewhere where we can say, actually, there's some pretty good work done here, not across the board, but you know, this new technology that arrives in 1903 that many, I think, in the first years see as a bit of a gimmick and something that might be a fad and will never take off, if you'll excuse the pun on that one, <laughs> it actually, in reality, is seen fairly early uh, in terms of its military, possible military applications and is used uh, effectively even as early as 1912, I think, in a series of war games in the UK. And then, of course, 1914, prior to the Battle of Mons. This is in many ways, a game changer, Spence, I think, in, in at least in terms of scouting and reconnaissance on the battlefield. It is. And very, very quickly, military men, writers perceive what a game changer aircraft are. Just to give you an, an example of that, a wider example from the, the, the wider world, in 1904, so just after the Wright brothers have made their first power flight, Jules Verne publishes one of his bleakest novels, which is Master of the World in which you have a essentially a global terrorist scientist who's operating in a vehicle called the Terror, which is a transforming vehicle. It can be a very fast ship, can be a submarine, can be a car, but crucially, it can also be an aircraft. And he's got access to, he can fly at incredible speeds, about 200 miles an hour, seems slow now, but of course in 1904, outrageous speed. And he, he terrorizes the world, he threatens the world until eventually he crashes in a thunderstorm. And it's a very bleak novel, it's, it's very downbeat because I think Jules Verne and others foresaw, well, the consequences of this very quickly are going to be people attacking from the air. Now, the army is very quick, the British army certainly, and indeed other armies, Germans and French, very quick to realize this potential. And at first, the aircraft that they're operating with are too small, they're too underpowered to carry any kind of weapon. They can't really carry any kind of bomb. You can't really fit a gun to them. Weight's a crucial issue. There's actually experiments with dropping sharp implements from the sky basically giant lawn darts that you drop on people and hopefully injure them or kill them. Very crude. But the real value of an aircraft is it is a phenomenal asset of reconnaissance because now, unlike the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War wars earlier, you can't hide behind the other side of the hill. It's going to be so much more difficult to actually hide your forces, achieve surprise, because an aircraft can roam above them, can see them, it completely changes the nature of reconnaissance. And all armies very quickly perceive this, including the British Army. And this is a charge that's sometimes leveled against the British Army. It was very technologically backward. It didn't really think in advanced terms. It was wedded to old-fashioned Victorian ideas. Certainly, that is not the case when it comes to aircraft. And aircraft would prove absolutely decisive in the British Army's war games of 1912, too. They would. And, and this is one of the things I think where we can really see for the first time the ability of uh, or, or what we should say, what air power could do, not necessarily what it does, but what it could do. And uh, as you've rightly said, Spence, one of the major issues that you tend to find is being able to identify movement and particularly large concentrations of troops. This is going to be really important when it comes to the story of the Western Front as well. If you want to know where somebody's going to attack, best thing you need to do is find where their troops are. And hiding 20, 30, 40,000 guys is not an easy thing to do, particularly when you're now able to overfly your enemy's positions. We're seeing the same thing in, in the modern world today with drones now becoming such a valuable asset on the battlefield. The same thing applies, except in 1914, you've got a man flying an aircraft, almost, almost completely untouchable, in fact, as far as 1914 goes. There's very few options to actually bring uh, an aircraft down at that time. 
not an easy thing to do. On the other hand, it's not an easy thing to keep an aircraft in the sky either, but you can certainly continue to, to use this as a kind of probing asset and to overfly enemy positions in 1912 is exactly what happens. Uh, two famous generals will talk about that war game perhaps in a little more detail. And there is in fact air power used in order to identify fixed enemy positions. The information of course then needs to come back, but this is the kind of thing that you just cannot do with the only traditional measure that you've got available prior to that, which is going to be cavalry on a reconnaissance. They are far more vulnerable than aircraft are. Aircraft can fly higher. They've got massively superior line of sight and vision and opportunities to discover enemy positions, considerably more range, can do it at a much higher speed and can do it repeatedly day after day without really any risk to themselves. This is something that you just cannot do with cavalry on the battlefield. And so when we first see this coming in 1912 and the ability to then scout out, identify, fix enemy positions, understand their intentions, same thing happens again in 1914 in the Round Mons. So we see within the space of two years, not only has this first been used in practice, but it's then implemented on the battlefield with real battlefield effects, Spence. Yes, it is. So in 1912, the war game is fought between the... Forces of Douglas Haig, of course, familiar to listeners of this podcast, to command the British Army in the uh, this First World War. And James Grierson, who, if you listen to the Battle of Mons <laughs> podcast, you might remember that the enormously overweight James Grierson, one of the finest minds in the British Army, uh, sadly fell foul of his love of food and drink, and he suffered a massive heart attack on the road to Mons, and so never got to actually command in battle. But in 1912, Haig and Grierson are, are, are fighting each other effectively, and the use of aircraft here to discover one another's forces is something absolutely revolutionary. The British Army immediately recognises how useful this is. It's incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful asset. And as you say, Dan, cavalry's got lots and lots of uh, of, of benefits, it can fight, it can scout, it can hold ground. But for pure reconnaissance, there's no better than an aircraft or even a balloon. You can you can elevate a balloon at the same time. Disadvantage of a balloon is it's fixed. Of course, it can't move, whereas an aircraft can roam and it can follow things. And this was really, really striking. And very quickly after this, the British start experimenting with, can we put a wireless set in an aircraft? And the answer is yes, but it's going to be really difficult. Um, and your aircraft's going to be incredibly slow. It's Wireless sets are really heavy in 1914. They're somewhere in the region of about 90 to 120 pounds. That, that's pretty heavy. And if you're putting in an aircraft where weight is such an issue, it's difficult. But very, very quickly, the, the British have assessed that the Royal Flying Corps is going to be essential to its wartime operations. And of course, it goes to war in 1914, supported by the Royal Flying Corps. And we, we keep coming back to this idea of pilots as daredevils. The Royal Flying Corps in 1914 does something that's described as a stunt. And in 1914, the idea of a stunt is it's not just doing a trick or in doing something impressive. It's also showing off a little bit if you're stunting. And the Royal Flying Corps makes the decision, rather than actually put its planes on ships and have them shipped over to the channel ports, instead it is going to fly en masse the entire Royal Flying Corps across the English Channel. Now, that doesn't sound very impressive in the 21st century. But if you consider the first flight across the English Channel had only occurred in, and going from memory here, I think it had only occurred in 1911. Three years later, the entire British Air Force is going to fly across the Channel. That gives you some idea about what sort of pilots and observers that we're dealing with here. It does indeed. It also gives you some idea of the size that we're dealing with here because the, <laughs> the entire Royal Flying Corps in, uh, in 1914, impressive as it is, 
is a total of 63 aircraft that are going to be coming across the uh, across the channel to take part in that very first fight. So 63 aircraft. We'll talk about the number there are at the very end of the war, perhaps at the end of this episode. It's going to be a, an astronomical change between that four years of fighting. But we should also remember what those type of aircraft are about. And we've discussed the, the main priority for aircraft in 1914, and it really remains that until 1918. The glory boys, the lads whose names we're going to know very, very well and we'll no doubt discuss in this episode, are not typically going to be scout reconnaissance aircraft. They're not going to be bomber crews either, which comes in later in the war. They're going to be the fighter pilots. But the reality is the fighters are there to protect the scouts. The scouts are the high value targets. The scouts are the things that are doing the main job. And later on, we're talking about artillery observers, perhaps there's a little bit of a shift when it comes to that, when artillery tends to dominate the Western Front. And we now have, as you mentioned, Spence, this idea of, uh, of wireless communication coming back. Um, that then becomes a priority. But fighter aircraft only really come about as a result of the dominance of scouts and what they're doing to the changing the landscape of the battlefield on the ground. But just to mention really briefly, a couple of the, the early pilots, a couple of the pioneers of this uh, this type of fighting, and, and perhaps when we get into the idea of the early fighters and kind of how that evolved, there are two names in particular. One is going to be Lano Hawker, uh, Victoria Cross recipient, a famous British pioneer of fighter aircraft. We'll come back to his dual with perhaps the most famous pilot of the entire First World War in a moment. And the other is going to be, uh, perhaps some people might know him or, or consider him to be uh, some famous old French tennis player. He's not indeed. He is, in <laughs> fact, a, uh, a French aviator. His name is Roland Garros. But the famous French, uh, the French Open, uh, the tennis tournament, is named after him. He, though, is one of the early pioneers as well. And he's going to work particularly on something called the deflector gear, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a moment. But it is Spencer, these early pilots um, that are going to form, I think, the start of what we know really as fighter aircraft and just gives an idea of why fighters come about and what the story is there in general. So it's really interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, when you start with the early military aircraft, they're actually just civilian aircraft that are converted for military purposes. And because the, the, the power to weight ratio in these early aircraft is, is pretty, is very, very fine margins. Anything you add to an aircraft is going to affect its flight characteristics. So strapping machine guns on it, strapping bombs on it. Uh, there's certainly experiments with that, but they basically don't work because they unbalance the aircraft. And in 1914, there's basically no way for aircraft to actually attack each other. There's numerous accounts of British, French, and German pilots seeing each other. In some cases, trying to harass each other, you know, flying aggressively at each other. There's some examples of pilots going into the skies with uh, revolvers or even with rifles and taking pot shots at each other. No effect whatsoever. Your chance of doing any damage or even hitting anybody doing this. I can't imagine leaning out of an aircraft, a biplane, and shooting at someone with a revolver with any expectation of scoring any hits. And weapons are added in terms of um, munitions you can drop. So I mentioned these giant lawn darts that are experimented with. They're quickly abandoned. Uh, people start dropping hand grenades out of airplanes. In fact, chap you've just mentioned, Lano Hawker, he actually wins a DSO in 1915. 
he carries out an air attack in his aircraft on a German Zeppelin shed, and he drops some hand grenades about 200 feet above, 200 feet above the ground. I'm not entirely sure how much effect that would have. The, the blasting charge in these grenades is minimal. But people are experimenting with weapons, but basically there's no way to really engage planes in the air except with ground fire, and even that's quite crude. And yet there's clearly a need to do so, because through 14 and 15, the use of aerial observation has become so ubiquitous, especially on the Western Front, when you lose movement. Instead, you can fly over those trenches, you can see what the enemy's doing behind them. And these aircraft start to dominate, in some ways, all aspects of planning and preparation for an offensive. So they can use photographic reconnaissance to map the trenches beneath them. They can observe things. The British, as early as September 1914, managed to get a wireless set into an observer aircraft and use it to actually direct artillery fire. Now, it's incredibly crude, the, the messages that are sent backwards and forward, backwards from the plane, because it's only a one-way system. The plane can indicate to the ground, but the ground can't indicate up. Messages are incredibly crude. There's no formal system for this. But with every passing week, the technology improves. Every single passing week, things get better. Planes improve. The use of planes improve. And by mid-1915, the Royal Flying Corps, under the leadership of its commander, Hugh Trenchard, who himself is a fascinating man, cripplingly wounded in the Boer War in the eight, between 1899 and 1902. He nearly died. He'd actually lost a lung. But he certainly didn't diminish his adventure, his appetite for adventure. And he'd become a pilot in 1912. And he absolutely filled the Royal Flying Corps with this ethos that it's got to take risks, it's got to get behind German lines to observe and study and photograph the area so the German trenches can be mapped. But the sight of all these observer aircraft flying around and denuding you of surprise and observing your positions, mapping them, directing fire onto them, well, that's intolerable for both, both sides. And so there's a pressing need to create an aircraft that can intercept these reconnaissance aircraft uh, drive them away, or even better, destroy them. And so there is a demand for a fighter aircraft. And I believe the first that actually goes into action is something called the Marine Bullet, which is a, a French aircraft which tries to solve the problem that these aircraft have about how do you fit a machine gun onto your fuselage and fire it through your propeller without shooting a propeller off? And the Marine Bullet's approach is it has an armoured propeller. So when you fire your machine gun, if it hits the propeller blades, the bullet bounces off. I can't think of anything more dangerous than flying along, firing a machine gun through an armoured propeller and having bullets ping off in all directions. But there's going to be a much better and more elegant and in some ways absolutely remarkable solution emerging in 1915. Yeah, there are indeed. In fact, there are two things that I think are both worthy of, of mention because one leads to the other. And it, it kind of goes on from what you've just mentioned there. And it's uh, first of all, Roland Garros, that French ace who has uh, looked at this idea of an armoured propeller. He's proposed a, a tiny modification, which is to create something of a wedge on the back of the uh, of the prop blades, which is going to deflect, and hence the name deflector gear, is going to literally deflect bullets, but thankfully away from the guy flying the aircraft and hopefully ping them off in a general forwards direction. The problem that the French have, um, particularly with the aircraft that, and the weapon that they're trying to use, is the Hotchkiss, uh, the French machine gun at the time, because it doesn't fire at a predictable rate. It's got a slight unpredictability um, about it, which makes timing uh, machine gun bullets particularly difficult. Now, if you imagine you've got two, two issues here. One is timing the rate of fire of a machine gun. Secondly, is synchronizing that to the rate, uh, the cyclical rate of a propeller blade. 
And uh, if you don't get the two things right, as you mentioned, Spencer, you shoot your own propeller off, which doesn't do anybody any good. <laughs> now, um, Garros himself is actually shot down in 1915 and uh, manages to land safely, but he's uh, he actually has to land behind German lines and is taken prisoner. And his aircraft in working order, including this deflector gear, is taken as well. And it's uh, pretty quickly established by the Germans who realise that Yes, we've got something here which we've not seen before. We quite like the idea. In fact, we know a guy, a Dutch guy, who we can go and have a chat to and see what he thinks. And this is a chap by the name of Anton Fokker. Now, Fokker is a Dutchman, but working uh, for the Germans in 1915. And he takes a look and he gets the idea. He understands the principle. He also understands, I think, crucially, the need here. Um, there's something that we should maybe go back one step and just, uh, just address here. If you can't fire your, air, your, your own armament forward, you need a second crewman in your aircraft to fire backwards. That has implications for weight and balance and speed and maneuverability and all of these kind of things. If you can work out how to solve the conundrum of firing your aircraft armament forwards, you don't need a second crewman. You can substantially cut down the weight of your aircraft. You can increase the speed. You can increase maneuverability. One guy can now fly the plane and fire at the same time by pointing his aircraft towards his target. This is what Fokker manages to solve. He manages to create what we call the interrupter gear, which is a timing device which is rigged to the movement. I don't know the exact details. Maybe you do, Spencer. The movement of the crankshaft. It's a rotary engine at the time, by the way. So the engine itself is rotating around the central crankshaft, which is turning a propeller. It's really incredibly crude. But the timing of that is managed to be synchronized to the timing of a machine gun, which means if the prop is in the way, the machine gun, in effect, will not fire until the prop moves out of the way, and then it will fire its round. It's incredibly impressive. But in effect, what Fokker managed to do is to create a system whereby the pilot can point his aircraft towards the enemy, fire his machine guns, hopefully hit the enemy, and not shoot his own propeller off. Mm. It's a revolutionary piece of equipment. And it also does something that, if you've ever watched a, a particularly an early movie, something like uh, The Dawn Patrol, for example, an Errol Flynn classic, one of my personal favorite war movies of the 1930s, machine guns on aircraft in the First World War had a very distinctive firing pattern. So whereas a machine gun itself would just be this constant stream of bullets, aircraft firing would have this staccato, stuttering style of gunfire. And that's because of the interrupter gear stopping them shooting off their own propeller. And it's a revolutionary bit of kit because you can fit your machine gun on the fuselage at the front. As you say, Dan, being able to shoot forward is incredibly useful. Otherwise, you've got to have a, another man in the plane with you operating a machine gun on a, a cupola who can spin it around. And indeed, we'll start seeing more and more of those fitted on reconnaissance aircraft to try and defend them as the war goes on. But the introduction of the uh, synchronizer gear and the fighter that the Germans make use of it most on in 1915, the Fokker Eindecker, literally the one-winger, a monoplane, pretty crude in fact, is a revolution in warfare because you've gone from powered flight, which in itself is, is pretty revolutionary in 1903, to now you've invented an entirely new form of warfare. You've invented air-to-air -air combat, which up until that point had not existed. And in fact, even the sci-fi writers of the day had struggled to imagine how it could actually take place. And now you have it. And it is totally new and totally revolutionary. Nobody has any idea really what an aerial combat will look like or how best to 
participate in one. And in fact, in struggling to describe what an aerial combat looks like, and a word is adopted that is now synonymous with aerial combat, and that's dogfighting. Because to observers on the ground, they can see planes circling each other. They're trying to get behind each other. If you're behind the enemy, he can't shoot at you if it's a fighter, but you can shoot at him. So there's this circling motion, which to observers on the ground, it looks like dogs fighting, where they're both trying to bite their hindquarters. And so the term dogfight is introduced to describe that interaction with fighter aircraft and indeed reconnaissance aircraft. But it's it's absolutely no exaggeration to say the introduction of the Eindecker, piloted by some skilled fighter pilots, completely changes the balance of air warfare. Uh, initially, of course, in favour of the Germans. In fact, the casualties the German fighter wing starts to inflict on Allied aircraft give rise to a pretty ghastly period in the autumn of 1915 called the Fokker Scourge because for a time there's a window where only the Germans have a really modern, effective fighter aircraft and they're swooping down on British and indeed French reconnaissance planes. And the French and British reconnaissance planes. Some of them do have observers with machine guns in the back, but it's pretty difficult to shoot these. They're pretty inaccurate. And they're getting knocked out of the sky left, right, and center. And in a little bit of a twist, and this is going to be something I think we see throughout the war, this technological race in the air is important to remember. So in, in 1915, the British have an aircraft called the BE-2, which comes in various variations. And it's a brilliant reconnaissance aircraft for 1914 and 15. It's easy to fly. It's very, very stable. It flies in a nice straight line. It turns slowly, so you're not likely to tear your wings off or put yourself into a tailspin. It's brilliant for reconnaissance, as long as there's no enemy fighters in the sky. Because in terms of rapid maneuver, it's just not going to happen. So you're pootling along in this big, slow, very stable reconnaissance aircraft. You're having a, a nice time. And then suddenly, what's this coming out of the clouds? An enemy fighter. You can't run away from it. It's too fast. You can't outmaneuver it. It's too maneuverable. And it's shooting at you. And that's the essence of the Fokker Scourge. And it is a deadly period for British and French pilots. Yeah, it really is. And and. I think this is something that we see throughout the, the First World War, particularly because technology is evolving so quickly. You do get periods where one side is dominant simply because they've managed to introduce a new aspect of technology that the other side hasn't caught up with yet. And there's a great example of this in 1915. We can go on and look at the Albatross, which comes out slightly later as well. Um, Lano Hawker, a guy that we've already mentioned up until now, he's one of these early fighter pilots. And remember the the whole conundrum of, of aerial warfare in the First World War, despite the fighter pilots taking the taking the lead and, and, and most of the plaudits as well, it's still trying to knock down your enemy scouts, protect your own scouts and reconnaissance aircraft over the enemy lines, knock down the enemy scouts, blind the opponent and keep your eyes in the sky absolutely absolutely on point. That's That stays the, the priority. But of course, you now have these fighters protecting your aircraft and fighters trying to knock down the enemy aircraft. So you get then fighter on fighter action, these dogfights that you've so well described there, Spencer. One of the issues the Brits have is that they don't develop the interrupter or synchronizer gear straight away. So one of the ways they try and get around this is to introduce something called a pusher aircraft. Now, these have a, if you imagine, that I'm sure many of you will understand the concept of a pusher, but for those that don't, it's literally the propeller behind the pilot pushing, propelling the aircraft forwards. Now, it works. It's nowhere near as effective as a, a puller, if you like, in that sense, a, a traditional front-facing propeller. But of course, when you haven't got an interrupter gear and if you want to have a single-seat fighter, you have to have the prop behind you because you can't shoot through the thing yet. 
And uh, the I think the most famous of these aircraft, Lano Hawker famously flies, is the Airco DH2. This is a fairly maneuverable, um, little more powerful than, than other aircraft, pusher, so pusher prop aircraft with a forward-facing machine gun. This is a single Lewis gun. So it's not heavily armed. It's not certainly not heavily armored, and it's not particularly not particularly powerful when you compare it to these much bigger, much more technologically advanced forward firing, interrupter gear armed, dual machine gun armed, um, modern German fighter. So the first of all, the Fokker Eindecker, and then later on the Albatross. And it is uh, perhaps, I think, the, the most famous of the early actions of the Great War is where Lano Hawker and his Echo DH2 runs up against none other than a young 11 or 10 victories at that time, uh, 10 victory ace by the name of Manfred von Richthofen. Yes, he does. And this is a fascinating battle and would become immortalized in both the British and the German press later because Lano Hawker is a certified fighter ace himself. He's actually scored some kills in 1915 in a, a very early British fighter plane called the Bristol Scout C, which is a, a pretty sturdy aircraft, actually. Variations of it will go on to do pretty well in the uh, in the First World War. And he shot down a number of German planes. He actually shoots down three in a single single day, which is quite impressive during 1915. And he's gone on to be more and more uh, effective as a fighter. He understands quite a, a lot about this. Uh, just as if you're listening about fighting, you might think, well, how's he shooting down planes before the British have the synchronizer gear? It's because the Bristol Scout has its gun mounted in this strange position. It actually fires at a 45 degree angle. It's to the left of the cockpit to avoid shooting through the propeller. Really difficult to actually operate this because it means you can only attack the enemy if you come at them from their right rear quarter, um, which is not the ideal approach because a, an enemy observer who's operating a tail gun, a machine gun in the in the observation aircraft, has a good angle on you as, a, as you attack. But Hawker makes the most of it. But he gets promoted to the, the very first modern fighter squadron, number 24, in fact, where he's flying these Airco DH-2s, of course. He's going to lead the entire squadron. He's Britain's most famous fighter pilot in many respects over the Somme. Uh, and indeed, in November 1916, over the, uh, the, the Somme, he's going to encounter uh, the young Man Baron Manfred von Richthofen, who's flying a much more modern plane than Hawker. Hawker's flying this DH-2. As you mentioned, Dan, it's a pusher, so it's propellers at the back, and you've got a completely open, exposed cockpit. Do have a Google of the Airco DH-2 if you'd like a look at this, because it looks crude. You can look at it and go, this is not the aircraft of the future. Whereas von Richthofen's flying an Albatross D2. Now, the Albatross is going to be a really common aircraft in its variant types for the Germans throughout the war. It's powerful. It's a formidable piece of kit. It goes on to have lots and lots of heavily armed versions. And on the, in November 1916, the Albatross D2 is better in just about every aspect than Hawker's DH2. It's more powerful. It's armed with two machine guns. It's got such a big fuselage at the front, you can have two machine guns strapped to it. Uh, there is a running battle between Hawker and um, von Richthofen, and hundreds of bullets are actually fired at each other. And Hawker realizes he can't outturn the Albatross, he can't outshoot it, he's got to make a run for it. He's lost contact with the rest of his fighters, and so he cuts and he tries to run. But von Richthofen's on him, he, Hawker can't shake him loose, closes in to very close range. And one thing that actually we should have perhaps mentioned is the incredible close range of dogfights in the First World War, because 
The um, the gun sights on these machines are pretty crude. They're, you've probably seen them on movies or in video games, just a, a, an iron circle you peer through. To be sure you're going to hit the enemy, you need to be really close to them, within 50 yards, ideally. You need to be right on their tail. And Von Richthofen fires almost his last burst of gunfire. His guns actually jam as he's chasing Hawker down, but one of these bullets actually hits Hawker in the head, kills him instantly. Hawker goes down, crashes. He's Of course, he's killed. He becomes Von Richthofen's 11th kill. Yeah, it's such a legendary account, this one. It, it's fascinating. If anybody wants to do a little bit further reading on this, I can recommend uh, the Rotter Kampflieger, which is von Richthofen's own memoir, written, of course, during the war. He doesn't survive the war, where he describes this action, this uh, this dogfight against Lano Hawker. And it's one of the most moving bits of text, actually, that you can uh, that you can read. There's a couple of comments in there that von Richthofen himself makes, he realizes very quickly that he's not fighting an amateur and he says as much. He says, we turn 20, time, 20 times to the right, 30 times to the left. And he says, we're spiraling down. I realize my aircraft's slightly quicker, climbs slightly better and turns slightly tighter than his. But he says, never, never mind, this gallant fellow continues the fight. He even says it once he gets down to a low level, he says that, that Hawker turns and waves to him as if to say, how do you do? What a, <laughs> what, a powerful, uh, what a powerful account. It really is fascinating, so do check it out. And he says, uh, this gallant fellow, he was full of pluck, even though he was in an inferior aircraft to me, he kept going and would, would fight all the way to his death. And uh, as you say, Spencer, the last, uh, Richthofen's last burst, of, I think of 900 rounds he fires, is actually what's responsible for bringing down and killing Lano Hawker, whose grave is subsequently lost and he's today remembered on the Arras Flying Services Memorial. Of course, we know that von Richthofen himself will go on to some pretty remarkable feats and, uh, of course, will not outlive the war. But the style of fighter that is born or the style of, of yeah, of uh, fighter pilot that is born, actually, I think is, is very much encapsulated in Richthofen, the idea of being a fairly cool and calm and if a little bit showy operator, but it's his style and the style that he develops from other leading aces, pioneers of the time, men like uh, Oswald Bolka and uh, Immelman, these kind of characters, they develop this idea of, of, of fighting and really refining tactics. With the stakes as high as they are, Spence, it's no great surprise that some of these guys are really putting in the effort to make sure they can get the edge in any dogfight. It really is. And there's a few things to pick out here, I think. One is that this is a completely new form of war. I mentioned earlier, nobody's dogfought in the skies before this time. It just wasn't possible. Barely conceived by the most ambitious of writers. And so these are young men. They're overwhelmingly young men, daring men. And they're trying to invent an entirely new form of warfare in Machines that are changing every two or three months. Forget the exact statistic, but it's something like there is a new generation of fighter appearing on the Western Front roughly every three months. So there's this constant change of technologies. And some of these are incremental improvements, but there's also significant improvements. Like the Germans managed to get two machine guns on a fuselage, whereas the British are stuck with one machine gun for a long time. And so these young men are inventing a new way of fighting. And you mentioned a chap, Max Immelman, who is a, a fighter ace. He's a, he's a Fokker Eindecker ace, especially. He invents or supposedly invents a maneuver called the Immelman 
Gimmelman turn, a sort of climbing, rolling turn, which allows you to change direction very quickly and also gain speed as you do so. There's some doubt actually that Immelman's old aircraft, his, his Eindecker, was powerful enough to do this. But to this day, we still refer to that maneuver as an Immelman turn. But one thing to say, and this again ties to Immelman, is these young men are, are daring, they're taking to the skies, they're fighting very hard. We've already established how dangerous it is to fly in the First World War, just in training. Well, flying in combat is even more dangerous. And there's this image we have of these aces as dominating the skies, as being the heroes of the war. And that's partially because in the war, that's how they're portrayed. They can humanize the war. They are individuals who are doing incredibly daring things. And there's this wonderful taste for the media on both sides of solo combat, like Richtofen's duel with Hawker, which just makes for great imagery and great copy. And it stands in contrast to this grinding mass attrition down in the trenches where there are thousands, tens of thousands of casualties every day. Instead, you can talk about an individual duel and it's very exciting. But the human cost of those duels is very severe. And indeed, the three aces, German aces we've just been mentioning, Richtofen, Bolker, and Immelmann, all of them will get killed. The, your chances of surviving the war if you're a fighter ace on either side are actually really low. And the, the, your manner of your death is often pretty unpleasant. And it's, it's pretty scary to go up into those planes with no parachute, because if you get shot down, you've got a very long fall. And if your plane's on fire, you're going to meet a grisly end. And I'm just reminded of a, um, a British ace, Mick Manick. Manages 61 kills before he eventually gets killed in 1918. He always flew into battle with a revolver tucked into a holster so he could shoot himself if his plane was on fire. That's the reality of this combat. So you've got this contrast between the romanticism of these knights of the sky, these daring individuals going up and dueling each other, perhaps even with a sense of honour, alongside the fact that their lives are short and their deaths are often terrible. And that, to me, is in some ways the, this, this paradox of aerial combat in the First World War. It's gruelling, it's difficult, and you have to be of a certain mindset, I think, to thrive in it. Yeah, I wonder if that's where some of the the kind of romantic episodes that we understand today, you know, if you talk about fighters in the First World War, I think across the board people will say, you know, these were brave men. And I couldn't agree more, for one. I wonder if it's this this paradox, as you say, Spence, of the kind of the celebrity status that comes with being one of these pioneers, these, these really household names at home, particularly in Germany, but also in Britain. Some of these, these fighter races, they're, they're national celebrities at the time. And then you look at what the reality is of when their lives almost inevitably do come to an end on the battlefield or over the battlefield. It's, uh, it's remarkable. I mean, people like Richtofen, whose end maybe we'll discuss shortly, is, is perhaps a little more forgiving than some of the others that we've heard about. I mean, the reality of this, Spence, as you rightly pointed out, you know, these men are flying in completely unarmored aircraft. They're flying in unarmored aircraft that are filled with fuel tanks, and they're flying in aircraft that are highly combustible. Now, if you remove the fact that there's no parachute for the vast majority of men for the vast majority of the war, if you're unlucky enough to get a machine gun round through your fuel tank with a, a, a red hot engine just, a, just ahead of you, which is emitting sparks, which of course is now going to be pushing fuel all over your person at 10,000 feet, and no matter what you do, you're talking a couple of minutes to get down, even if you're in a dive here. 
you know, the reality is that's immediate and instant death. And the choices that you're faced with are burned to death over a couple of minutes. And then probably, you know, your wing's going to collapse, your aircraft's going to fall to pieces. The chance of you getting to the ground from 10,000 feet on fire, zero. Shoot yourself and, and put yourself out of your misery. You know, that's, uh, of course, an option. And as you said, McManic famously carries a pistol for that exact purpose. Or potentially face living but being horrifically burned. There's very, very few options. And at that point, whether you're a celebrity, a national treasure at home, I think it just brings it back to that human aspect, really. Mm. The reality is far more brutal than that. And there are so many men whose names we don't know or whose names mm. are not household names who go up on their first and second mission. Young, impressionable lads may be inspired to join by the likes of the names we've just mentioned mm. who end their their lives in a, in a horrific manner above the battlefield. It, this, this is absolutely true. And one thing that's just emphasised, lend some weight to this, the, uh, the, the casualties and the, the death and, and the, the threat in the air war is your actual chance of dying as a pilot. Proportionately, it is one of the deadliest arms of service you can be in in the First World War. U-boats are actually slightly deadlier. They, if a U-boat goes down, usually it goes down with its entire crew. But the actual death rate, if you're a pilot or an observer, if you are in the air, is considerably higher. It's a good 50% higher than if you're an infantryman. You may be, you know, you may feel a certain sense of safety because you're up in the sky, but in reality, it's full of dangers. And as your plane goes down, if it's damaged, your chance of surviving that that plummet is low. Unless you're low to the ground already and you can put it down into a forced landing, uh, you're you're in grave danger. And the air is filled with dangers. We've already talked at length about the dangers of mechanical failure. You've now from 15, you've got fighters hunting you. And one thing that I think people forget is. These aircraft are also flying during periods of intense combat on the ground, and the air is filled with artillery shells that are howling past you. And although the aircraft try and fly high enough that they're not going to be in the firing line of those artillery shells, in reality, and we don't have the statistics for this, but it certainly happens, aircraft get hit by artillery shells. Just your bad luck, you're flying along, you're trying to observe something, suddenly uh, an 18-pounder shell that's gone a bit high goes flying right through your fuselage. That's the end of you. And indeed, some of the most harrowing accounts you actually get from the First World War is of pilots flying underneath or passing nearby artillery barrages. And there's just this constant shriek as all these shells are flying past. It's creating unusual air conditions that's rocking the plane and buffeting it. And it, it's truly terrifying. I, I can't imagine it myself, but that's the kind of dangers these pilots face. And so goes back to the point I'm, we were talking about earlier about, is the Knights of the Sky image accurate? Well, perhaps in a way it is, because actually being in a medieval battle was terrifying and bloody too. Being in a, an aerial battle in the First World War is terrifying, bloody. And as you say, Dan, so many young men who we don't remember, who aren't aces, who perish perhaps even on their first or, or second mission or, or are lost before they have a chance to, to establish a name. There's so many of these, and they're young, often intrepid young men. Just one, to give an example, William Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia's brother, one of his younger brothers, in fact. He's flying a BE-2. He's an observer. He goes out in late 1915, October 1915. He gets shot down, almost certainly by German fighters. On It's one of his first missions. It may even be his first mission. His body's never found. And his loss hurts Lawrence of Arabia extremely deeply. And uh, he's just one of thousands. So this is 
bloody combat. In some ways, in some ways proportionately bloodier and more dangerous than even being in the infantry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's certainly, um, it, it, there's no doubt at all that it's incredibly dangerous. There is, um, I think we can thank Blackadder for this one, a uh, general idea that we know that if you guys have watched Blackadder, at least the famous uh, British uh, comedy series related around the First World War, Blackadder Goes Forth. Great series, not necessarily where you should get your history from. The idea of this, the 20 minutes comes about, the idea of having a, a life expectancy of 20 minutes or young officers on the Somme having a life expectancy of six weeks or so. Spencer, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I find these numbers disagreeable. I don't think there's any real basis in reality of saying anyone's life expectancy in any position or any time is X, Y, or Z. There's too many variables for my for my taste. I don't know how you feel about it, but there's no doubt it's a dangerous role, but to actually put numbers on it, I think it's quite tricky to do. Yes, I think it is. And I think you can really play um, play around with those statistics and use them to prove almost anything. There, there was a book not so long ago called Six Weeks, and it claimed that the average life expectancy of a British officer in the First World War was six weeks. Well, you can play with these and actually say at certain times and certain battles, your life expectancy uh, might be pretty darn low. Um, one that just, just strikes me about this, and this ties back to a point we've been talking about, the technological arms race between air forces and sometimes the Allies have the advantage, sometimes the Germans have the advantage, with a turnover of about every three to four months. I'm thinking about April 1917 and the Battle of Arras, which certainly the opening of that goes rather well for the British and British Empire forces. But in the skies over Arras, this is an absolutely horrible time for the British Air Force. It's finding itself with relatively outdated aircraft against much more advanced German aircraft. And the casualties in the skies over, uh, over Arras for the Royal Flying Corps are absolutely appalling. The uh, von Richthofen's there, he's leading Yasta 11, inflicts about a third of all the British casualties during this battle. And during this time, a, your average life expectancy as a pilot, as a British pilot operating in this area, is about two weeks. Now, we can't then extrapolate and say, well, the average life expectancy of a pilot in the entire war was six weeks or eight weeks. So I think we have to be very careful with that. But we can say at certain times, your chances of survival were pretty low. And there's, there's no worse month in 1917 to be a pilot for the British than um, what's called bloody April over Arras. And that gives you some idea about the two things, I think. One, that technological turnaround, that the Germans have a technological edge and are, are using it to punish the British aircraft. But secondly, the fact that air warfare is so important that even though the Royal Flying Corps is taking an absolute beating over Arras, there's no suggestion where we stop operating. In those planes have to fly. They have to go out and do the reconnaissance. They have to go out and try and photograph the German positions. There's no suggestion of calling it off, but of course those those pilots take a take a thumping. And by this stage, of course, aerial warfare is changing a little. So the British are taking out reconnaissance aircraft. They'll usually have escorts, fighter escorts to protect them. The Germans are diving on them with their fighters. There's swirling dogfights. And that's the becoming the nature of air warfare. It's gone from those individual duels that you see in 1915 and to an extent in 16 to more and more squadrons actually engaging each other in these big, complex, swirling battles where the risk of actually just flying into somebody is probably as great as the risk of being hit by bullets. Yeah, and equally deadly as well, which is, I think, something that's really important to mention. And one of the reasons it's equally deadly is because of, I think, probably one of the most controversial aspects of the story of the Great War in the Air, and that's the idea of parachutes. 
Now, we know that parachutes predate, well predate the, the Great War, in fact. They're even used. Uh, so um, balloon observers, one of my favorite names for a, for a type of uh, serviceman in the Great War. But balloon observers, of course, become known as balloonatics. Uh, <laughs> these guys managed to find themselves uh, at least in a, well, certainly in a very dangerous position, dangling precariously from a hot air balloon somewhere near a battlefield is is never going to be a, a particularly bright idea, hence the nickname that comes about. But one thing they do have is access to a parachute. Now, one of the problems with parachutes, they're very heavy. They're very cumbersome. They actually have to be slung on the outside of the basket of the balloon. But they do work most of the time. They're nowhere near as reliable as the kind of things that we see today. And there are lots of issues. You know, parachuting from a static balloon is one thing. Um, parachuting from a moving aircraft that's potentially on fire. Even getting your, your parachute on is another. There's another issue here as well. And, and Spence, you kind of bring it up when we say about how the nature of warfare has changed. We're now looking at just trying to make small gains, which can be absolutely important, uh, life-saving in the battlefield. It might be a few miles an hour here. It might be a degree of more turn or bank here. It might be the ability to carry a few more rounds in your aircraft. All of these things, they're balanced on a knife edge as this technology increases. One thing that nobody really wants to do is add a 40 or 50 pound parachute into an aircraft which has been stripped down to everything but its bare bones. Mm. Now, this is, I think, one of the really controversial things, Spence, because really, I mean, when we look back at it now, and, and certainly from a humanistic point of view, the, the commodity is not the aircraft but the man flying it. And this is where we have to strike that balance. This is true. And the point you've made about actually the, the practicalities of getting a, a parachute into a cockpit are well made. These fighter pilots are not unanimously in favour of using parachutes in the early part of the war. And although that might seem in really quite bizarre to us as a modern audience, bear in mind that in the First World War, two things are going to get you killed more readily than anything else as a pilot. One, your plane isn't fast enough. And secondly, your plane can't get enough altitude. And adding more weight to your plane is going to diminish those two things. Speed and height are absolutely crucial in aerial combat in the First World War. If you're slower than the enemy, he's going to run you down. You can't escape. If your enemy can get higher than you, he's going to dive on you and he's going to shoot you to pieces. And so adding a big bulky parachute, which adds weight and also makes it harder to fly. Remember, these cockpits are not designed to accommodate a parachute in the certainly until 1918. So actually fitting a parachute in Really, really difficult. You can fly fly with it on your lap. You don't necessarily have it strapped onto your back, but really difficult to fly with. And so your plane's going down, then you've got to get it off your lap, strap it on and jump out. That's really going to be challenging. And so it's by no means universally approved, but gradually there's an acceptance that, well, actually preserving pilots' lives is perhaps more important than, than uh, the, these considerations. But it always remains a little bit controversial. And there's, there's real practical problems with this in terms of actually jumping out of a plane. Because I think we've all got this impression, gained from movies and TV, that it's really easy to jump out of a moving aircraft and parachute away. James Bond does it all the time. In reality, it's extremely difficult, especially if your plane is damaged and out of control. You're facing all kinds of intense G-forces. Jumping out and not just spinning away to your death is far harder than expected. And so, although it seems to us bizarre that people went into action without parachutes, there's actually reasons for it at the time. 
Yeah, the thing is, though, there is another side to this coin, and uh, I don't think it reflects too well on the original um, on the original board of the what it is the Royal Flying Corps at the time, where there is a discussion amongst senior officers, and they say, okay, well, should we be issuing parachutes here? And I know a number of a number of pilots are consulted. Um, I wonder how much that opinion changes throughout the Great War. But it's, there's a there's a famous line that is put out there, which I think really doesn't do anybody any credit. Mm. And it's something along the lines of I'm paraphrasing here. It's believed that by staying in an aircraft, men will be uh, more likely to bring home a damaged aircraft that could be salvageable than otherwise. Mm. Well, that's kind of a given if your option is try and bring home a damaged aircraft or die. You don't have a choice. The idea is that there's a suggestion that men will abandon aircraft too readily when they could be saved. Well, yeah, and for good reason, right? <laughs> you can understand why somebody would want to do that. The The thing that I find, I think, too difficult to to understand from my point of view is, is why this is an across-the-board thing. It in the frontline trenches, you know, there are private purchase options. Men can buy body armor. Men can can buy private uh, private purchase pistols. There are entrench periscopes if they want to change the way that they fight on the ground. So I think the options should have been there, at least in the air. And one of the things that we need to remember, of course, is that more than 50% of casualties are sustained out of action. Mm. So what happens if you're just one of these unfortunate guys who loses a wing in a, in a training accident or whose engine breaks down or whose cockpit sets on fire? Mm. by some uh, some mishap in those instances parachutes are absolute lifesavers mm. and far too many men die without the option to uh, to save themselves this this is true and um, the idea that, that pilots might jump out of their planes early is in some ways and this is how sometimes a a logical fallacy can be drawn from observations it's drawn from what Balloon observers tend to do, because balloon observers, as you've already said, Dan, are issued with parachutes straight away. These are specialist observers. You don't want them to get killed when their tethered aerial balloon is blown up by enemy fighters. So, of course, you're going to give them a parachute, and it is easier to jump out of a, a balloon basket than it is out of a moving plane. But there's been some there's some criticism at the time that the observers see incoming German fighters and think, well, I'm not going to stay here. I'm basically attached to an enormous inflammable object. I'm jumping straight out of the basket and parachuting to safety. But of course, this is a completely different situation. And, and there's some criticism about that. Oh, well, the balloon got destroyed and uh, they, the observer jumped out straight away. Well, what's the observer going to do? These, are, these balloons aren't actually armed, although there's anti-aircraft guns beneath them. The observer can either sit in his basket and go, oh, I hope I don't die, or he can jump out and parachute to safety. And to draw the idea that pilots and observers will jump out of their stricken aircraft too soon because people have seen people supposedly prematurely jumping out of balloons is, is quite a bizarre inference. And I have to say, it's if we're going to play with the idea of lions led by donkeys and parody the idea of, of the Edwardian mindset in the British Army of courage at all costs. You can see an element of this in this refusal to give pilots parachutes. You can, and I think one of the more vocal pilots. Uh, by the time the Americans get into the get into the fight properly, and they, of course, are flying with with French aircraft. Uh, the famous American ace Eddie Rickenbacker, I think, is very mm. vocal about this, and describes uh, at least a number of accidents uh, which are outside of combat, where he says parachutes would have absolutely saved lives. If we flip back to the other side of the coin, it's tricky because if we're now talking about trying to learn in training to operate a fighter aircraft, 
can you get a realistic appreciation of how to fight if you just said, well, okay, we'll, we'll train and you can have a parachute in training. You can't have one in action. Well, all of a sudden you're now flying a completely different aircraft in terms of its performance and characteristics. So it's such a tricky question to answer. Um, I tend to fall myself on the the side of, you know, that there's too much waste by people not adopting this this uh, potential life-saving device mm. quickly enough. And I think the Second World War and the fact that they're adopted really from 1919 onwards plays that out. Mm. So, I mean, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, it's, the whole story of, of aerial warfare in the, in the Great War is, is fascinating and tragic in equal measure because there, there really is, even for the most skilled of pilots, Spencer, an idea of fly until you die, and, mm. and none of these none of these leading pilots really escapes that, including, of course, the famous Red Baron. Mm. And I think this is a, an interesting aspect about how warfare is evolving. We've mentioned several times now about this technological race between the Germans and the Allies. There's also a race for how you actually fight in the air in terms of organization. And the day of the lone hunter, fighter stalking his prey in 1915 and to an extent 16, is giving way by 17 to these much larger squadron-level dogfights with dozens of aircraft perhaps circling each other and diving on each other. And by 18, that has become the standard approach, the British flying in formation, the, in fact, all forces flying in formation, trying to work with what a new term, a wingman, somebody who is just off your wing in his own fighter aircraft, and engaging in what looks like recognizably modern aerial combat. But it becomes a numbers game. And I think that's a common phrase, one that keeps cropping up. I know you've used it a number of times in past episodes, a numbers game. And the Allies are putting up more and more fighters into these uh, dogfights. And it puts huge strain on the individual aces. One thing to note about aerial combat in the First World War and the Second World War is the disproportionate effect of having skilled pilots in your unit. Bizarrely, and this was found in the Second World War, and it's I'm sure it's true of the First World War too, single aces often shoot down far more aircraft than their wingmen. They're just better at it. They've got a natural eye. Von Richthofen's great strength is he's an incredibly good shot, for example. He's got an absolute killer's eye for shooting. Um, so they have a disproportionate effect. But in a really large dogfight, just sheer weight of numbers, just weight of bullets flying through the sky is starting to take a toll on you. And in fact, the uh, the other element is the scale and the intensity of aerial combat in 1918 is, is absolutely enormous. It's really intense aerial fighting with absolutely huge dogfights. And in fact, the, the intensity of aerial fighting is, is worth really dwelling on a little bit here because you are putting dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of aircraft into the skies across the Western Front. One of the most intense days for the Royal Flying Corps of the entire war is the 12th of April of 1918 during the Spring Offensive. It's actually the RAF by that stage, the Royal Air Force. It's got an independent force. And it drops more bombs and flies more sorties, a sortie is a mission, than at any other single day during the war on the 12th of April. And in that cost of that, there's over a thousand aircraft in the uh, in the in the skies at various times. And during the stopping of the spring offensive across the front, about a thousand Royal Air Force aircraft are lost with about 400 aircrew going down with them, which gives you some idea about the intensity of the combat. And in these swirling dogfights with multiple aircraft, everyone's firing at each other, you need your head on a swivel to avoid it. The, the role of aces diminishes because even the best pilots find themselves just outnumbered and outgunned and von Richthofen's one of those. 
He is indeed. And if actually anybody listening to this podcast wants to know a little more in a bit of detail, by all means, uh, head over to our Battle Guide YouTube channel where we've done a, an in-depth video on the death of the Red Baron. So you can check that out. But it is a story worth telling here, I think, via the podcast as well. And one thing to point out, Spence, as you mentioned, in terms of these pilots coming into the air and these huge dogfights that start to take place, just to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a young pilot coming into this scenario for the first time. You imagine somebody getting thrown into this and saying, right, well, here's an aircraft. You've never been in a fight before. Get up there and, and, and give it your best shot. You're going to get shot down really quick, particularly if you've got aces of the opposing side, you know, just waiting to prey on in, inexperienced pilots. And so what we find is both the Germans and the Brits and, the, of course, the French as well are going to start to bring in novice pilots and they will bring them in in a more of an observation role. So they'll be in a fighter aircraft They'll be told, right, you're going to come up on our particular sortie. Your job is to stay out of the way. Watch and learn. Get some height. Look up there. See if you can figure out what's going on. Learn how to handle your aircraft. Learn, you know, watch me from a, a safe distance. And that is exactly what happens on the day the Red Baron, who's a, an 80 victory, an 80 victory pilot by this point, the, the most, the highest victories of any man in the entire uh, history of aerial warfare. He's actually bringing up with him that day his young cousin. He's, he's the whole von Richthofen family are famed pilots, and we shouldn't we we tend to focus just on on uh, Manfred, but uh, his brother Lothar is a an ace of more than fifty kills and uh, goes on to to bigger things in the Second World War. But um, young or oh, Manfred von Richthofen is bringing with him his cousin, and uh, his cousin is going to be told stay out of the way. We're going to go out for a for a a fight hopefully stay out of the way look from up up on high and just figure out what this is all about and at the same time um at a place called Bertangle not far away um the two uh, the two air bases being Capi and Bertangle you've got a Canadian by the name of Roy Brown who is also an ace he's going to be making his way up into the sky on a patrol hopefully to catch up with the Germans and alongside him is one of his school friends believe it or not a man by the name of Wilfred Watt May He's been told exactly the same as von Richthofen's cousin, stay out of the way, learn what's going on. Hopefully you can pick up a few hints so that next time we're in action, you're not going to get shot down straight away. And believe it or not, these two forces do meet in the sky. They Exactly what's expected to happen, they break into a huge dogfight. Von Richthofen's flying around, of course, in his red Fokker Tridecker at this point, immediately clear to everybody exactly who he is. His whole squadron are painted the famous flying circus in different colours. And they're really doing some damage to the Brits, albeit Roy Brown is a, is a seriously competent pilot flying by now a very impressive aircraft, the Sopwith Camel. And the two things that we know really for certain is that uh, Wilfred May and uh, von Richthofen, the younger, the cousin, are trying to stay out of the way and they seem to have spotted each other, both doing exactly the same thing. And Wilfred May, who seems to be missing out on all the fun, decides he's going to attack von Richthofen and drives him really through this dogfight straight down to the Somme River below and starts chasing him to try and shoot him down. Now, this is exactly what he's been told not to do. In doing so, the older, the of course Manfred von Richthofen, sees that his cousin's in trouble, realizes what's going on, and breaks off from the central dogfight and decides to follow down Wilfred May. 
So Wilfred May is now wedged, is now the, the ham in a Von Richthofen sandwich, so to speak. <laughs> and he is going to be added to, we're going to add a little bit of brown sauce as well, because he is going to be followed by Roy Brown, who also sees Von Richthofen break off and follows him down. So we've now got four aircraft moving down in the same direction. We've got Von Richthofen the Younger, we have Wilfred May chasing him. We've got Von Richthofen chasing him and Roy Brown going hell for leather trying to catch up with the three of them. The one thing that Von Richthofen Sr. Manfred has done, which he has never done before now, is to chase too hard and too long and explicitly too low because they're now over the British lines. In fact, they're over Australian positions. And it's very likely Spence ground fire, which takes the life of Manfred Von Richthofen. That's right. The final fight of the Red Baron, endlessly analysed, and I think you've painted a really vivid picture. And just imagine, listeners, you're being in the cockpit, the roar of your engine, the vibration of the plane. These are not smooth rides. They're not flying on a level flight. The, the engine's shaking you. You've got your wings are always going to um, vibrate slightly. The howl of the wind coming past you, the chatter of machine guns, the thunder of your own machine guns. And then you're flying over these Australian trenches. And one thing that is a genuine danger for the aircraft of the first rule is ground fire. It doesn't have to be delivered from specialist anti-aircraft weapons. Just some a digger, an Australian digger, suddenly says, oh, I think I'll have a shot at him, puts his Lewis gun on a, on a, uh, a bipod and starts blasting away. They're so low that there's a real risk of being hit by just sheer number, amount of bullets flying out of the trench. Remember that every British platoon, and that includes Australian platoons, has a Lewis gun. Pretty effective anti-aircraft weapon against low-flying aircraft. So this is, uh, in some ways, I think, perhaps, the, the, final, the death of the Red Baron marks, we can almost say, the end of an era of that style of individual hunter-killer ace. And he's died in a dogfight, as you so brilliantly described, Dan, which in some ways would be unrecognisable to the Red Baron and Lano Hawker when they were dueling in November 1916. Aerial warfare has changed. It's become industrialised. And of course, the threat from the ground with plentiful Lewis guns has also changed too. And in a way, it's a passing of the guard when the Red Baron finally falls. And of course, a huge blow to the morale of the German Air Force and indeed the German nation too when he perishes. And he's... Um, given an enormous amount of respect, in fact, by the Allies after he's passed away. Yeah, he is, and, and slightly surprisingly so, actually. You, you could argue that by this stage of the war, the idea of this, this chivalry has, has fallen by the wayside to some extent because, actually, it's just so deadly up in those skies that there's been chivalrous on one side and they're staying alive on the other, and in many cases, it's, it, self-preservation comes first. I think that's really the end of chivalry. But we do see this kind of throwback to this with the Red Baron. And I, I wonder, you know, the, the fame he's earned flying this famous red three-decker. He's known by everybody on the Western Front. And these Australians know exactly who they're shooting at when they're firing at him over the Somme at a height of something like 50 or 60 feet. We believe that he gets a single round, actually goes in under his right armpit and exits out of his, uh, his left chest. So very likely fired from the ground by a man, possibly uh, a Sergeant Cedric Popkin, Who's, uh, who's firing. There's also a couple of other options, a, a, um, a gunner Buey and a gunner Evans, who are a Lewis gun, anti-aircraft Lewis gun team firing from the other side. But there's also probably a couple of hundred Australians just firing randomly Lee Enfields at him just <laughs> as, he's, as he's going by. So there's a lot of pot shotting in the sky. But when the Red Baron comes down, famously, uh, and you can decide whether you guys believe this one, uh, saying, all is kaput, as his last words, 
Whether that happened or not, there's a little bit of a grey area. Certainly by the time Australians get to him and in fact strip his plane into small pocket-sized pieces over the next couple of minutes, he is, uh, he's lost his life. The official credit for the Red Baron's kill goes to Roy Brown, the Canadian, who in fact is probably the one person we can be pretty certain didn't shoot down von Richthofen. Um, but he attends the funeral along with a huge number of Australians when he's originally buried at, I believe, Burtangle Cemetery. And he's, um, he's buried, he's given a, an honour party, a guard of honour. There are wreaths laid for him, all, a, any number of things. In fact, his, his journey after death is almost as, as exciting as his journey whilst he's alive because he ends up getting moved, I think, three or four times. Um, mm. Once to the German military cemetery at Freekorps, um, later on to Berlin's famous uh, famous cemetery Invalidenfriedhof, where uh, a number of, of famous um, German aces and, and military leaders are buried, including Ernst Studet, who another another ace. And um, his headstone, in fact, in Invalidenfriedhof has bullet holes in it from uh, a Berlin Wall escape attempt in the 1970s, where the, the border guard fired at it and it hit von Richthofen's headstone. His body is then later moved to the family crypt. But yeah, he's. Um, I think you're right, Spence. I think he is the the end of a of a period of chivalry, the changing of the guard to a certain extent. And I I wonder if um, you know, from from the Red Baron's point of view at least, I wonder if he ever had any desire or feeling that he was going to survive the Great War because he actually he ends up getting more and more reckless. And you can just think the mental toll that's taken on these guys must have been enormous. The strain of going into action day after day was was. Unbelievable. Uh, incredibly so. And it's not just a mental strain, it's a physical strain too. Flying in those open cockpits at high altitude and comparative high speeds is very, very draining on a pilot. It's very cold up there. We've all seen the image of them in their flying helmets, their goggles, their scarves, their flying jackets. You need that because it's extremely cold. You don't have pressurized cabins, you don't have oxygen masks. One thing that we tend to forget is pilots who serve long enough effectively destroy their sinuses. So they're always sniffing. They've always got colds because they, they cold up there and the, the air just basically takes the lining out of your sinuses. They see inflicts damage on you. And the psychology, the pressure of being up there where any time you take to the skies, you might die or you might kill takes a toll. And I'm thinking particularly of a British ace, Albert Ball. He uh, mm -hmm. has 44 kills before his death in 1917. And he's suffering from what we would now diagnose as severe PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the, it manifests in him, he becomes obsessed with the idea that he is a murderer because he's shooting down individual German planes. In one case, he shoots down a German plane and he actually sees the pilot jumps out of the plane. No parachute, just goes spinning away. Maybe he's fallen out of the plane, maybe he's jumped out. And it haunts Ball terribly. And he's really fatalistic by 1917. He's seriously mentally damaged by what he's going through. Uh, he's the, probably the most famous example. He dies probably in a training accident or a flying mishap in 1917. But I'm sure there must have been dozens of pilots on either side who were feeling those psychological stresses and strains. We might, in the images and the language of the day, see a nobility in aerial warfare, but I, it's still ultimately a kill-or-be-killed environment with incredibly high stakes. Yeah, and particularly, you know, given the ages of these of these lads as well, I know it's it's one of those cliches that we tend to use in, in the Great War, they were all, all so young. I mean, the reality is, as we've discussed in this series already, not everybody's oh so young on the battlefield. Average age of 26.2. There are 
men of uh, in their 20s, men in their teens, men in their 30s. When it comes to fighter pilots, there is actually a, a real argument to say that many of them are younger. The average age of a fighter pilot is significantly younger than the average age of a of a private soldier on the Western Front. It's late teens, early 20s at most. Um, by 1918, though, the, the Royal Air Force is so enormous, is so enormous that you've got thousands upon thousands of young pilots who are going to be going home, many of them traumatized pretty Pretty horrifically, as you can imagine, and many of them physically scarred as well. Spencer, I know it's one of those stories that we haven't really touched on here. But you know, the nature of some of these injuries that for the these men and young lads that come back is, is such that you know, refitting into society is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not, and it's it's quite significant that for post-war pilots who form associations, this. There's a, a real tendency for these post-war pilot associations to to veer into quite extreme politics. So, for example, um, ex-Luftwaffe pilots in uh, Weimar Germany in the 1920s lean quite heavily into Nazism and fascism and very right-wing attitudes. In Britain, there's been some research done, although it's by no means conclusive, to suggest that there's pilots who survived the war seem to die prematurely at a much higher rate than other service arms. And this might just be due to the stresses and strains of flying. It's basically taken such a toll on them physically that even after after the war's over, they don't necessarily uh, live happy civilian lives. And so it does weigh heavily upon them. The one thing perhaps they can take some comfort from is that in the 20s and 30s, as the media of the day looks for a, a story, looks for stories to latch onto, the pilots of the First World War remain immensely popular. We've already mentioned some great films of the era, Wings, silent movie with incredible aerial dogfights. It's an early Oscar winner. Dawn Patrol, two versions, the most famous with Errol Flynn, which capture this and others as well. So their image in the post-war world is very, very high. They're extremely high, in fact. But the toll it's taken on the air forces and the pilots who fly them and the mechanics, of course, and everybody else who puts it together is, is really, really heavy. And as we sort of come to perhaps a conclusion with this, one thing to really emphasize to the listeners is what a revolution this has been. How much has changed from that first flight in 1903 to 1918, where we're talking about thousands of aircraft fighting the length and breadth of the Western Front. And... We said in 1914, the Royal Flying Corps takes 63 aircraft out to France and flies them over the channel in an act of great daring. By the end of the war, the British have 22,000 aircraft. What an increase in production. And these are aircraft that are unimaginably more advanced than the aircraft of 1914, with big, powerful engines, with multiple machine guns, in some cases, armour attached to them. This, this is the future of aerial warfare, and it's all occurred in such a short space of time. We've gone from 1914, when it wasn't even possible to really engage one another in the air, to 1918, where you've got all the aspects of modern air warfare that will dominate fighting, in, not only in the First World War, but also the Second. Yeah, indeed, a remarkable and fascinating story, and one that I hope uh, we both hope, I'm sure, that you guys have enjoyed. It's always, always really interesting to cover these kind of aspects of military history, and of course, we'd love to hear what you would like us to cover in the future. There's so many amazing rabbit holes that we could uh, we could disappear down as a group and and just see 
what there is to be discovered about certain aspects of the Great War. So do please drop us a quick comment. Please, please, please leave us a review as well. It's incredibly helpful to us for the uh, inverted commas algorithm, which is so important when it comes to sharing the story of this podcast with others. I just want to finish with a, a big thank you for you guys for listening and joining us. I'm sure, Spence, you feel the same. I absolutely do, Dan. I'm sure with listeners, you can hear that Dan and I are really enthusiastic about this. We love sharing this information with you. We love discussing it. And we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. So if you've got a question based on anything we've said, if you'd like to know a little bit more details and aspect, perhaps we can shed some light on, feel free to leave us a comment on whatever podcast service you're listening on or if you're listening on YouTube. And just to echo Dan's comment, if you have a spare minute or two, please do leave us a review, whether it is on YouTube, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever service you're listening on, it really helps us to develop the show and it helps us, of course, to learn a little bit more about what you like about the show and what you'd like to hear more of. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. Excellent. Did you like my bit about the, the Rick Toffin sandwich and the brown sauce? I thought <laughs> that was, that was absolutely choice, Dan. I thought that was a, a, yeah, we may have hit a peak with that.